Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. This past Tuesday, I went to lunch with a guy named Paul McKinney. So we took a picture. I don't take a picture every time I go to lunch. I mean, I don't know why I wouldn't. It seems like a great thing to do. But I did take a picture with Paul outside of O'Charlie's right down here at the bottom of the hill. It wasn't Mexican. That was his choice. I don't know. We're just praying that the Lord will help him with that. But we went to O'Charlie's and the bread was great and the food was good. And so Paul's a guy that for the last three years has been attending our church. At the 11 o'clock service, he sits somewhere right over here. And if you don't know Paul, you're really kind of missing out. Because Paul is a great guy. He's been attending very faithfully uh, over the last three years on Sundays. He's in a G group. And so some of the guys that go to one of the morning breakfast groups with him, like they've gotten to know him and his story. And, and so uh, Tuesday, Paul was sharing with us what we've known now for several months was coming that today, like right now in this moment, he's on his way to the airport here in Atlanta to fly from Atlanta to Johannesburg, South Africa. And then he'll catch a flight sometime tomorrow if you just kind of kind of worry about international time change. Don't worry about that, I guess. Sometime tomorrow, he will fly from Johannesburg to Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Victoria Falls is somewhere right in that kind of point that comes between Zambia and Botswana and Zimbabwe. There, It's right on the border of really those three nations in, in, in some respects. And so Paul has felt the call to go and to spend the next two years of his life living in Zimbabwe. And so as we go now and, and we're kind of meeting together, he's on his way to a flight to go and be in Africa for the next two years. Now, again, if you don't know Paul, you, that sounds like a completely crazy story, and it is. But before the three years that Paul was attending here faithfully, he had spent about 10 years kind of off and on the mission field. He'd spend three months somewhere and then back home, six months somewhere back home. And so over the last few weeks and months, the Lord has really opened up an opportunity for him to go to Zimbabwe. And so as I was listening to his story, here's, here's the story in a nutshell. In the country of Zimbabwe, there is a pastor, and this pastor is also an evangelist, and he is a church planter. And over the last several years, he's been planting churches, and now there are about 200 churches in about five neighboring nations from their hub there in Zimbabwe. And it's not like church planting where you and I might think about church planting, and maybe you don't have any context for church planting, but one of our missions partners currently is the Association of Related Churches. And so we give every single month to this organization to help plant churches in North America and now beginning in other places around the world. And you're going to hear about that on Mission Sunday, which is September the 12th. And so we plant churches, which means we help to support people that feel called to go into a community and launch a brand new church. The, the, the mission of the Ark is that we would go in and have a life-giving church in every community in North America. And so the Ark does that, but they go in with planters that feel called to go and start these churches. Well, here's how it works in Zimbabwe and these surrounding nations. There's a pastor that has the fire of God inside of him, and he goes into a new community, and he says, hey, I'm from Zimbabwe. I want to I share something with you. And he gathers a few folks together, and he begins to preach the gospel. And people are saved, and people are just kind of lit on fire for God. And so then he says, okay, I've got to go. This is a new church. This is awesome. He was like, who owns a Bible? And one guy over in the left is like, well, I own a Bible. He's like, great, you're going to be the pastor of this church. <laughs> and so he's like, well, hey, who's, you know, he goes to another community. Nobody owns a Bible. And he's like, well, I'm going to leave you my Bible. Who's been saved the long? Who, who accepted Christ more than a few days ago? And one guy raises his hand. He's like, well, you're the pastor. And he just hands him to us. So now you have these 200 churches that need training for their pastors because they, they don't really have the experience, maybe even the biblical knowledge to really lead a congregation. And so what this pastor does in Zimbabwe is he brings 
brings these pastors in from these 200 churches into his community and they have built a ministry training center and they come for two weeks every quarter of the year to be trained. And so they help pay for their bus fare to get them there. They help pay for their food. They help pay for their lodging while they're there. And so they need some increased revenue. The the income there in their uh, region of Zimbabwe doesn't allow for them to have just excess funds. And so one of the things that they've done is they have bought 500 acres of land there to start a farm. They paid the government $20,000 for a 100-year lease for this 500 acres. And so now it's, hey, we're going to go do farming. And so Paul is going there to run the farm for the next two years to create sustainable income for this ministry to be able to plant new churches and to train these pastors. And so I said to Paul at lunch at O'Charlie's, I said, that's incredible. Talk to me about your farming background. He said, I have none. I said, well, that's awesome. Okay, that's great. Because I knew about his business background. He works in a family construction business. I kind of knew about that. And so I was like, well, that's awesome. I said, so if it's not farming, then it's obviously the continent of Africa. It's obviously Zimbabwe. So I said, talk to me about your heart for Zimbabwe. And before he could answer me, he started crying. And he started, tears start running down his face. And I'm a crier. I mean, I am a crier. I don't make any, any false pretense about it. I started crying. I think the waitress was like, what is happening at table seven? So Paul's crying. I'm crying. I got chills as Paul says this. He says, I don't feel called to Zimbabwe. I feel called to say yes to God. And God said Zimbabwe. He's crying as he tells me, like, I don't feel called to Zimbabwe. I just feel called to say yes to God. And he said Zimbabwe. And then I, I left that lunch, and, and again, I think our waitress came and refilled our drinks like four times. I think she was trying to hear the story. I left that lunch, and I took a picture with Paul outside of O'Charlie's, and I was deeply moved by a heart that would just say yes. No matter what God was asking, a heart that would just say yes to God. And what I want to share with you today is just that kind of heart to say Yes. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you have a context to go, oh my goodness, like the Lord's going to call me to Zimbabwe today. (laughs) That's not where I'm headed with this, but if the Lord does that, that's awesome. This, This may not be about moving somewhere halfway around the world. It may just be God asking you to say yes to walking across the street. It may not be something on the other side of the earth. It may not be something that seems huge in the greater scheme of things, but you know it's huge to you because it requires a step of obedience from you because God is saying, will you? And you have to determine if you have the heart to say yes. In the book of Isaiah, which is an Old Testament prophet, it's, it's one of the major prophets. There are major and minor prophets, and you would think, does that mean one is more important than the other? Not necessarily. Uh, there's obviously a lot of content from the major prophets. It's really about the size of the book, the size of the content that's, that's there in your Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible or an app, I'd love for you to go with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking here and. We're going to read the first few verses of Isaiah 6 together, and and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what we see there about this heart to say yes. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. 
For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. So, some context to set it up, just some backstory here. The prophet Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, the prophet Isaiah is not the only person in scripture that had a vision of heaven or had a vision of God. You see that in a number of places from the writers of scripture. But Isaiah is giving us a point of reference to when he had this vision. And he had this vision in a time in the history of Israel that would have been important because he says in the year that King Uzziah died. So in point of reference back to that, Uzziah became king when he was 16 years old. He he ruled for over 50 years, about 52 years to be exact. And and he was a good king. The the, the book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles really tell us about his his leadership in the kingdom there. And and if you're reading through those books, he is called Azariah in one place, but Uzziah in other places, but it's the same guy. And so he rules for about 52 years. 2 Kings says that he was a ruler who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So this was not a king like many of the other kings of Israel who did what was right in his own eyes. He did what was right in the eyes of God. But something happened towards the end of his reign in 2 Chronicles 26, you can read it for himself. He goes in and he burns incense on the altar of incense, which was something that was reserved for the high priest, not for the king. And so God strikes him with leprosy for punishment for him, not just being king, but trying to take the job of the high priest. And he lives out the remainder of his days in isolation with leprosy until the day he passes away. And so this would be saying, Isaiah here, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is not just saying like in the year that one of our kings passed away and someone else, like this was a 52-year reign. It was a large chunk of the history of Israel. This was saying like, hey, in the year that we transitioned power from a really great and godly king to perhaps someone else that we don't know. In a year that we transitioned power from someone who was strategic and who did military battles and who protected our interests, in a year that we transitioned power from someone who was strategic and sought the heart of God, like we're trying to figure out where is God in all of this? And so Isaiah has this vision and says, in the year that I was trying to understand what would happen to us as a people because our king had passed away, where was God in all of this? He was high and lifted up, seated on his throne. It's so easy for us in the present day to look around at all the things that are taking place around us and the world continues to get worse and worse and worse and that's a part of the story. So there's no need for us to freak out about it. We are living in a sinful and fallen world that must continue to fall away from God so that the world sees its need for the redemption of God and that's what's taking place. And so often if we're not careful, we can ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of all of this? And I would quote to you the words of Isaiah 6. He is high and lifted up, and he is still sitting on his throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he was high and exalted, and he was seated on his throne. And then I saw the seraphim. Now, seraphim are these six-winged creatures that we read about in some other places in Scripture, including in the book of Revelation. And you're like, six wings, that sounds weird. It sounds like some kind of comic book or something. But with two wings, they covered their face because no one could look at the presence of God. And so these heavenly angelic creatures could not look onto the face of the glory of God. So they had to cover their face. And with two wings, they covered their feet, which would be the symbol of humility, recognizing that in the presence of God, they were not, they were not the, the, the focus of the story. They were humbling themselves by covering their feet. 
And with two wings, they flew. And they weren't even talking to God. No one could attain to talk to God. They were talking to themselves and declaring to one another that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They they couldn't even speak that to God. They weren't even declaring that over the earth. They were declaring that to one another to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they began to proclaim the holiness of God, the doorposts shook. The, the, the power of God was demonstrated, that it was so powerful, this holiness of God that was being demonstrated by these angelic heavenly creatures, that everything that was solid lost its ability to stay solid under the power and the presence and the holiness of God. I've been in places like that. I've been in moments where I was overcome by the power and the presence of God, and I couldn't do anything but just kneel and just, just, just take a moment to reflect in how good God was. And that happens to Isaiah. He is left to realize like, woe is me. Like like when I am standing in some place where the presence of God and the holiness of God is being declared, I recognize I am unholy. I am unclean, according to what we read in Isaiah 6. And he said, not only am I unclean, I live among a people that are unclean. I recognize that I fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter three, verse 23 declares that same thing about all of us, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Woe is me, I am unclean and I live among a people that are unclean. And then we see that the angel, one of the seraphim, with the tongs, he picks up a hot coal from the altar. And we read in other places in scripture where it was these things that would be burned away off of our life. They would be burned away. We would go through this this process of refining And so the seraphim brings the coal and touches Isaiah's lips and says, you are no longer guilty. You are made clean. You're no longer guilty of the things that you see. Your your sins have been atoned for. This was a novel idea in Isaiah because Jesus hadn't come yet. And so the prophecies of Isaiah and the prophecies of Daniel, the prophecies of Ezekiel, these prophets of the Old Testament that were declaring the need for Jesus to atone for sin. This was a novel idea as Isaiah declares, my sins have been atoned for. The price has already been paid by someone else. It was the holiness of God that atoned for those sins. And the seraphim was declaring that over Isaiah. And you're like, where are we going with this? How does this connect to a guy that's moving to Zimbabwe? Because when we see the holiness of God and when we recognize our own sinfulness and we recognize in that moment that we are undone, it's in that moment that we hear the voice of God calling out to all of us to say, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send to this people that are unclean? Whom shall I send to the earth that is in need of the holiness that I am demonstrating? We see the seraphim that are declaring holy, holy, holy. Why would it need to be said holy, holy, holy? You ever talk, talk to somebody who tells a story and they just keep repeating the same details? You're like, I got it, bro. Just can you finish this up? It's like maybe the seraphim are like, they're stuck in the story. It's like, okay, I got it. He's holy. Well, there's primarily two reasons that they repeat themselves. One, according to theologians, they declare holy, 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 because as they look upon the countenance of God, even through covered face, they see the Trinity. They see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we also recognize that in the Hebrew, intensity speaks to power. Intensity and repetition speaks to what they're trying to communicate. So if something is repeated, we recognize the intensity with which the author is trying to get us to understand it. So to declare that God is holy would be one thing. To declare that God is holy, holy would be something altogether more important. But to declare that he's holy, holy, holy is to let us know that there is none like God. And so the seraphim declare this holiness. And in this moment of the holiness of God, where Isaiah himself is undone, and he says, woe is me, 
I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. God provides for his atonement and he asks, whom shall I send? And if you continue reading in Isaiah 6, which we're not gonna do today, you find this place where Isaiah has already responded and said, I'll go, send me. He says, what shall I say and how long shall I say it? And so God gives him further instructions here in Isaiah 6. But whom shall I send, God asks. Whom shall I send to run a farm in Zimbabwe with no farming experience? A guy like Paul says, I don't feel called to Zimbabwe. I just feel called to say yes to God. And he said Zimbabwe. You're like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't feel called to Zimbabwe. Okay. Whom shall I send to your cul-de-sac? Whom shall I send to the, the unclean people of Cherokee County? Whom shall I send into your classroom? Whom shall I send into your conference room? Whom shall I send into morning traffic tomorrow? Hello. And Isaiah responds, and notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, here I am, I will go. Because so often what happens is we go without being sent. He says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I only want to do what is on your mission. I only want to do what is a part of your plan and your will, God. I don't want to go anywhere that you haven't sent me. So send me to the places that need you to touch people of unclean lips, like myself. Send me. Corey and I just returned a few weeks ago from a trip. We got to get away for a few, a few days, and it was awesome. We loved it, and I'm thankful for my mother-in-law watching our kids. I was so excited about the trip, I probably would have left them home by themselves, i got to be honest. But I'm thankful that she was able to watch them, and that would have helped Corey just relax on the trip. So we had a great time. We went with some friends to celebrate our 40th birthday. It was, it was great. And so while we were there, we had a blast, and we did a lot of fun things. One of the last days that we were there, we were out on the beach, and we were just talking and reading and just having fun, and there was some, some pool volleyball games that happened every day at 11 and 2. We were dominant. What I'm telling you is like nobody else won other than us. I don't want to brag. I mean, pride comes before the fall, but I've already left and we won a lot, okay? <laughs> so it was in between the 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock volleyball matches in the pool. And we're just hanging out there on the beach. And as we're talking, all of a sudden, we hear some commotion a little bit out in front of us. And when I say a little bit, I'm not talking about a few hundred yards away or half a mile. Or I'm talking about maybe, maybe 75 feet from where we were. We hear some commotion. We hear people screaming. And as we hear them yelling, we turn our attention to what's taking place. And there are four people carrying a pretty large man out of the water. And he, he looks like he's blue in color. It's a scary moment. I, I can offer nothing to that situation other than prayer. I have no expertise that would help with anything they were about to do. And so I just walked as close as I could and I just began to pray. A friend of mine that was on the trip began to pray. We had someone else join us. We had a group that was near us. We had talked to them. We knew they were faith-filled people. They honestly dropped to their knees in the sand and just started praying. These four individuals that carried this man out of the water began to work. It was unbelievable to watch. Some of them did not know one another, but they all started doing various jobs. They began to give him CPR. 
You saw some people jump in, they began to give him mouth to mouth and they, they traded off to make sure that they were continuing that process. People were beginning to pump on his chest. And so I was watching as I prayed. He had not breathed the entire time they brought him out. His wife was there. She was obviously upset. She's crying and screaming about them being able to resuscitate her husband. They take out the, the paddles that they would put on his chest to try to revive him. And just before they fired the paddles, you see him spit up water. He started to take some struggling breaths. They turn him to his side so that he can spit out anything that's there. And I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm just trying to describe for you the scene that was taking place before me. And so they said, hey, don't, don't fire the paddles. Don't do that. Stop. And so they began to talk to him and you heard him begin to groan. You watch this scene play out in front of you. Eventually, the paramedics arrived. They had been called moments before. The paramedics arrived. They got him onto a, a gurney there on the sand. They got him on something they could transport him to the concrete steps not too far away, and they transported him as quickly as they could to the, to the ambulance. We found out later that by the time he got to the ambulance, he was talking. He was responding to them. We, we followed up the next day at the front desk. We were told that he was going to spend a few days in the hospital, but thankfully, his life had been spared. As we began to talk to the people that were there on the beach, including those that were a part of that process of helping to literally save his life, I saw one man who had a, a big bloody knot on his head. He had, he had fallen into the ocean. The tide was very, very strong. And that's really what had knocked this, this man down that stopped breathing. He, he knocked under the waves and hit the floor of the ocean and was knocked down again before he could catch his breath. And he took too much water in and then he stayed under the water. And these men that were close by saw it and they began to scream. And so they ran over to try to grab him up. And when they went to do that, one of these men was thrown under the water and he banged his head on the ground. And yet he jumped back up and he grabbed his leg and another guy grabbed the other leg and two other individuals grabbed his arms and they began to carry him out of the ocean. We started talking to them about like, how did you know what to do? How did you know what to do? There was primarily one family that was helping to provide these life-saving efforts. All of them were on vacation together. And in this family of six, there were two doctors, two nurses, and an EMT. Just beside them was people they had never met. It was a fireman from Mobile, Alabama. He was the one that told them not to fire the paddles. There was another police officer who was standing there. She was actually transitioning from the police force. This was her last trip before she prepared to go to be a teacher now. And one of the, the workers from the resort came to her and he said to her, he said, ma'am, I need you to back up. She said, no, I need you to back up. I'm still being effective. And when I stop being effective, I promise I'll get out of the way. But right now I'm being helpful. And she maintained her composure and she kept doing what she was doing. When the paramedics came, even between the translation from the English language that all of these helpers spoke to the Spanish language that these paramedics spoke, they were able to communicate to make sure that they got this man the health care that he needed to make sure that they saved his life. Wouldn't you know it? A man finds himself underwater. As soon as they grabbed him up out of the water, the wife that was the nurse that was standing there looked at her watch and began the time. When the paramedic showed up, she said to the paramedic, she said, he hasn't breathed for four minutes. She had the time, she knew. They knew how many compressions they had done. They knew how many breaths they had given. Because in that moment, they just responded to the need. Wouldn't you know it, a guy finds himself underwater and on that beach in that moment of time, there's a couple of pastors who played very little part physically, but just sought the Lord and 
to intervene in that circumstance. And there was a couple doctors and a couple of nurses and a couple of EMTs and a firefighter from Mobile who knew just what to do. Here's what I believe with all of my heart as I kind of land this plane today. There are people in your life who are drowning right now. People on your job, people in your school, people on your street, people on your ball team, people that work across the way, people that you're gonna do a conference call with on Tuesday, people that you'll see just through Zoom sometime later this week, they're drowning right now. They don't know how they're gonna make it. We talked about that from Psalm 69 just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not trying to belabor that point. I'm not trying to be uh, in, in any way manipulative to the story here. I, I, I really believe there are people in our lives right now, they don't know how they're gonna make it. And I believe that if we look to the words of Isaiah chapter six, and if we are inspired by the story of Paul McKinney as he prepares to fly to Zimbabwe, not because he feels called to Zimbabwe, but because he feels called to say yes to God, and God said Zimbabwe, we come to a moment of crisis, a moment where God is just asking for obedience. Whom shall I send? Who's gonna jump in the water and save people that are hurting? Who's gonna cross the street and talk to people that are in need? Who's gonna make themselves uncomfortable to connect to someone who has no hope except the hope that we know that's available through Jesus Christ? I think it requires an acknowledgement that God sits on his throne even in a time of uncertainty that we live in right now. I think it requires us to recognize the holiness of God. I think when we experience the holiness of God, we recognize our own shortcomings to say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But once we experience the power of God on our own life, the forgiveness that we can experience, that Isaiah experienced, the atonement that's necessary, when God asked, whom shall I send? We say, yes, send me, send me, I'm in. And I don't know what that looks like for you, so I'm gonna ask it this way. What is your next yes to God? What is your next yes? It could be a lot of things. For some of you, within the context of this church, it is to go to Discovery Track at 11 o'clock. You're trying to find purpose. You're trying to define, define how God has uniquely wired you. You're trying to figure out if this is the place for you. It's Discovery Track at 11, for sure, no doubt. You came on a great day. You came to the 915 service. It's just walk upstairs. We'll make a place for you. For others of you in the context of the church, it's saying yes to serving somewhere. You're like, I don't love kids. I don't, I don't, I don't feel called to kids, but I feel called to say yes to God. And God said, kids. I, I don't feel called to youth. Some of you have been trying to figure out what this shirt says. This is Generation Youth. You're like, oh, I did not know what you were. <laughs> okay, Generation Youth. You're like, I, I don't, I don't, mm, I don't feel called to middle school students. Whew, that's, I got out of that as fast as I could but I feel called to say yes to God. And God said middle school. For some of you outside the context of this church, it's, I mean, God, I don't even like my neighbor. I've got some neighbors in the room. I like you, I'm talking hypothetically. It's like, I don't even like my neighbor. But God, I feel called to say yes to you and you said my neighbor. I, I, don't, I don't feel called to Zimbabwe. I don't feel called to plant churches. I don't feel called to missions. I don't, I don't feel called to any of that, but God, I feel called to you. And you said, 
What is your next yes to God? Here's what I believe with all of my heart. Some of you right now, you knew. You knew before I started telling the story. You knew before I started asking the question because God has been beating this into your chest for a while. And you knew what it was. Many of you right now, you know exactly what God is asking of you. And it's just an acknowledgement of yes that puts you in a place of obedience to God. Others of you, you're not sure. And so this moment is just saying, God, let me experience your holiness. I've experienced your forgiveness and atonement. And so God, I'm asking you to make it clear to me. What is my next yes? Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. In just a moment, we're gonna pray for our students. So we're gonna do that in a minute. But just before we get to that place, just right now in this room and watching online, I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, that yes is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I need him to forgive my sins and be the Lord of my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? I wanna pray for you today. I wanna pray for you. Thank you so much. You can put it right down. And now if you would say, Jeremy, for me, I just wanna say yes. Maybe it's experiencing his holiness. Maybe it's being overwhelmed by his goodness. Maybe it's to be forgiven of something or recognize my own sinfulness. But, but right now I, I have a heart that wants to say yes. Here I am, Lord, send me. And I wanna say yes. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right there? I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for the confidence to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God, we love you and we thank you so much. God, we thank you that you're seated on your throne, even in the midst of uncertainty. We thank you, God, that we can experience your holiness. We thank you, God, that when we experience your holiness, we recognize our own deficiencies. And God, we thank you that in our own deficiencies, you made a way, you atoned for our sins, and we could be made right. And so God, now I pray for every person who acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord of their life. And God, I pray now for every person that wants to say yes whatever that looks like. God, if it's in the context of the church and it's going to discovery track, if it's beginning to trust you financially and give faithfully here through this local church, if it's, if it's to volunteer for a place of ministry, if it's their neighbor, if it's their classroom, if it's their job, if it's another relationship, God, would you help us to say yes and trust you completely? Here I am, Lord, send us. God, we pray that lives are changed families are impacted. This community will change for the better as we are fully obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here's what we want to do to conclude our time together today. We're going to bring our students in from upstairs, our G kids, and we're going to ask you if you are in the room, if you are a middle school, elementary, middle school, high school, college student, if you work in a school in any capacity or you are the primary educator of your family, your children through homeschool or some other type of avenue, I'm gonna ask you to come to the front. So all these students, all these kids, we've got our preschool kids and up coming in, middle school, high school, college, educators in any fashion. If you're a homeschool parent and you're the primary educator of your children, I'm gonna ask you to come forward. Let's move, let's move, let's move. Come on down, come on down, come on down. This is the prices right now, I'm just kidding. Come on down. You guys can face me for just a second. You can face me for just a second. Facing me for just a second. You can kind of stack in here behind, guys, if you guys want to come in, maybe just right in here. What a great-looking group. What a great-looking group. Here's what, here's what I want you to know real quick. If you're a student, any age, elementary, middle, high, college, here's what I want you to know. I want you guys to look at me right here. We love you so much. 
Your church family loves you and we're so proud of you. And we believe this could be the best school year you've ever had. And we want you to know that when you walk into that classroom or you walk down the hall to the other room in your home where you do school for homeschool or if you go into that college class or college campus or you're an elementary, middle, high school student, you walk into these classrooms and public or private settings, whatever that is, that you're not going by yourself because there's a bunch of people in this room and others in another service and those watching online that are part of your church family and we've got your back. We love you, we're proud of you. We believe God's blessing and favor rests upon you. And we, we believe this could be the best school year you've ever had. If you're a teacher, educator, whatever your current context of education is, we believe that God wants to use the light that lives inside of you to shine light into some dark places, into some students and families and classrooms. We, we know that there's some things you gotta say and you can't say and all of that, I get that, but here's what I want you to know. We've got your back. We want you to be light into the dark places of this world. We want you to speak truth, but we want you to speak truth in love. We want you to care for those that are under your care because we recognize that not everybody has people that have their back like these children do. And so we want you to know that we're proud of you. We're thankful for you. Teachers, when you leave today out in the lobby, we've got a gift for you. You can go across the lobby. There's a little basket there. We'd love to put that in your hand. If you're a classroom teacher, we wanna put that into your hand just to say, we love you, we're thankful for you, and just as a blessing to you. If you're in the room, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. I want you just to stretch your hands this way as we pray over these students and teachers and just pray for God's best in this school year. Can we do that? God, we thank you today for each one of these children. God, we thank you for every preschool student and every elementary student, every middle school student, every high school student, every college student. God, we pray your blessing and your favor over their life. We pray, God, that you would do a work in and through their lives. We pray, God, that you would touch them with your presence so that when they walk into these classrooms, they carry a sense of your presence with them. God, I pray for these teachers. I pray, God, for administrators. I pray for faculty members in whatever context they work within this school system. God, I pray that you would be with them. Give them your, your favor and your blessing. We pray, God, that you would help them to speak truth and speak that truth in love. God, that they would provide great care for the individuals under their care. And that, God, there would be something about the way that they conduct their lives that people would see there's something different inside of them. God, I pray for our homeschool families. God, I pray that you would help them in the year ahead, whether that's a choice that they've made recently or maybe something they've done for a long time. God, I just pray your blessing over them as well. Help them to be able to stay focused and to do what you've called them to do in this season. And God, we pray that you would allow us to make a change in the lives of people that we interact with. And God, we honor you with everything that we do here at Generations Church. We bless this generation of students and those that care for them. And God, we believe this can be the best year yet. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day and God bless.